before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. It's been way more than a week since uh, we've brought the Doom, and I'm delighted to have the chance to catch up with everybody's favourite green chicken, Doomberg. Doomberg, my friend, how are you and how is life in the coop? Grant Williams, great to see that you're, in fact, back in the Caymans. This is a a rarity. And I should say, for everybody listening, uh, in between recordings, um, you know, they say that you should never meet your heroes, but we were um, blessed with an appearance from none other than yourself at the Chicken Coop. So you'll have to tell us, what did you think of the Chicken Coop? It was certainly great to host you. And and I will say that old adage is false. It was wonderful to meet you. You were a true gentleman. And for those who have never met Grant in real life, I must say, um, even nicer in person than he sounds on these wonderful podcasts. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be difficult, let's face it. Well, I mean, I had, a, I had a terrific time. The Chicken Coop is amazing. It, it's such a great little spot you've got there. And, and the way you guys have done it, all out. It's. Uh, I was very jealous. I have to say, I'm sitting here in my little kind of semi loft in the Cayman Islands, very jealous of Team Doomberg's workspace, which is really quite something. I have to say, it's. Uh, and you, and you, are the renovation started? Oh, we are knee deep. There is not a room in the house that doesn't have a piece of sandpaper on the floor somewhere. But uh, I, I'm looking out the window of the chicken coop as we record this, and I see snow. So uh, you know, nothing in life is without trade offs. And I must say, you were a, a very loud whiner about the weather. I mean, let's be honest. It was, uh, well, it listen, was pretty I, chilly. <laughs> I, 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 I decamped from you, went south where it got warmer again, and then I went to Sweden. And, man, there is a reason why so many shows about miserable serial killers are set in Sweden in the winter because, <laughs> man, it is bleak, let me tell you. I'm sure the summer is absolutely delightful, but, oh, boy. Uh, I believe the word you used to describe the weather, as you called me on your way up here, was grim. So I guess grim. Um, that, yeah, grim. That's bleak. One, bleak is one <laughs> one degree worse than grim. Apparently, on the Grant Williams <laughs> afraid of cold scale. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, listen, my friend, it's been such a long time since we've uh, managed to catch up properly, and um, you have been. <laughs> quite prolific in that time. There's an awful lot of stuff that you've written. I keep getting these emails come through and reading them and going, oh man, we have to talk about this. So I'm going to try and engage you in meaningful conversation about a couple of them. And I want to start, if you'd be so permissive, to let me kick off with um, the whack-a-mole piece, which I thought was absolutely superb. So let's talk about that. Lay out the premise and then I want to dig into it because I thought it was a really, really interesting piece as, as they usually are. Well, from the beginning, a small minority of analysts, content creators, I would count yourself and Luke Roman and the Doomberg team into this category, we were kind of puzzled by the West's strategy vis-a-vis Russia sanctions, you know, the, the seizing of the reserves and what that would mean long-term for the dollar. And uh, we wrote very early on a piece called Crazy Pills, where we pointed out, you know, weeks after the sanctions were imposed, that the crazy strategy behind the Western implementation of sanctions, especially as it pertained to Russian energy. And, you know, anybody who has spent more than five minutes in the commodity sector, which must exclude all of the decision makers of every Western government, knows that you really can't hurt the revenue of a major player in the energy sector by sanctioning their volume. 
because they will more than make it up in price. And this is commodities 101. When you are dealing with deeply inelastic materials like oil and natural gas, if you try to stunt the volume of a major player, and let's be clear, Russia is among the leaders in the export market for these materials, which of course sets the price, the market clearing price for everybody. And if we were to be successful in, say, cutting half of Russia's exports from getting to the market, the price of of those commodities would more than double and Putin would more than make it up on price. And yet we've learned nothing about this and, and we continue to basically play into Vladimir Putin's hands. Now, look, we are very clear in all of these pieces. If your narrow objective is to minimize Putin's revenue so that he can no longer afford to wage war at the level that he might want to, then there's one and only one way to go about doing that, which is to flood the world with commodities. You know, I I was just a guest at the Grizzle Research Conference and actually made the point, which sounds provocative when you first hear it, but makes perfect sense um, when you think about it for a bit, which is that the the, the U.S. Navy should be escorting Russian oil tankers uh, to make sure that every molecule of fossil fuels that Russia produces finds its way to the market. And, And if we were to do that, we would substantially reduce the price, which would then necessarily reduce Putin's revenue. Oil famously traded for minus $37 a barrel during COVID. It traded for $135 a barrel at the peak of the Ukraine-Russia crisis. That shows you the, the inelasticity of these materials. If we flooded the world with supply, uh, we would crush the price and we would therefore actually impact Putin's revenue. And of course, what we've seen since then is the failures of, uh, of these sanctions has become readily apparent. This crazy price cap we couldn't believe when we first heard was actually serious policy has failed. And yet um, we haven't learned a thing. It's really amazing. It's, it's two years on now. Putin's revenue has continued unabated. And then, frankly, the, the war in Ukraine is starting to look um, pretty grim. Uh, not, not quite bleak yet, but grim for the NATO team and, and for the Ukrainians. The thing that dawned on me as I read it, and I remember thinking this at the time when you wrote the Crazy Pills piece, before it was proven, was just how obvious it was. It doesn't take a genius to look at this, just look at the, the incentives, you know, in the week that we've lost poor old Charlie Munger, God rest him. The quote about show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome is such a fabulous piece of advice. And so what is it you think that allows people who operate in markets, either as a hobby or as a living, to understand this stuff so simply and for politicians who, look, they're not idiots, right? I mean, we all have our issues with them. They must know. They must understand the actions of what they're doing. How do we end up like this? How do we end up where they make these um, pronouncements, they do things for show, knowing full well what the ultimate outcome is going to be, but they press on anyway. I just don't get it. You know, we, we wrote a follow-up piece to Crazy Pills called The Peter Principle, where we profiled, you know, the 60 Minutes uh, segment shortly after the sanctions were imposed. And, you know, this, it's not just the White House, the media, 60 Minutes, is, of course, has a, has a research budget far larger than Bloomberg's, I can assure you. And yet, you know, it has to be incompetence because you couldn't make it up with malice. Here's the thing. It just feels like it should be right. If we stop Russian oil from flowing, surely that will stop the Russian war machine. But like you, you can't. <laughs> the black market, we, it's like trying to stop gold from flowing around the world. I mean, all you're going to do is increase the friction costs of transacting in the space. And so when we say the U.S. Navy should be escorting Russian oil tankers to make sure every drop of Russian production finds its way to the market as flawlessly and friction-free as possible, that is actually the counterintuitive way to reduce Putin's revenue. But it isn't. This is my whole problem. You know, look, these people have access to all kinds of consultants, right? One presumes that the consultants they 
get to advise them, have a, a working understanding. Because this isn't oil-specific. This is any commodity. The same supply-demand dynamics will impact just about every single commodity in the same way that you described. And so I just, I'm at a loss to understand how this idea that we need to be seen to be doing something trumps any kind of common sense. And it all it feels like at the end, they're just ready to say, uh, we'll explain it later. We'll be able to explain this away. I think they've been fooled because it works on small producers. So if you're a negligible producer in the commodity sector, um, it is, of course, if you could stop your oil or natural gas from getting to the market and it doesn't have a material impact on global prices, well, then that's a strategy that might work. But you're talking about basically the largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world. And we saw how plus or minus one million barrels a day can radically swing um, the price of oil. So I do think that perhaps they had fooled themselves with previous adventures in, in their attempts to, say, sanction Iran when they decided to tackle the, the, the Russian bear uh, in this case. You know, the other part of this whole fiasco was the EU-mandated price cap, and you, and you talked beautifully about that too. So, so, so let, let's kind of pick that apart as well, because it's just, it's just compound madness at this point. The, the things that they're saying to appear tough, the things that they're saying to look like they're taking steps are just ludicrous. So walk me through the, the EU-mandated price cap, more importantly, the utterly predictable ways in which that's turned out as well. Well, as we said at the piece, I mean, when we first read about this idea, it sounded so crazy to us that it, that it read as satire. Basically, we have decided that we, the West, not just the EU, I might add, I think this was um, birthed in the White House as well, we just can declare that Russian oil shall not trade hands for prices above $60 a barrel. And the means by which we were meant to enforce this arbitrary price cap just on Russian crude was by denying shippers of these oils, Western insurance, as though the insurance were more valuable than the cargo being transported. It's really amazing to think that our moat, our geopolitical moat, is our willingness to underwrite insurance. And so, of course, this didn't work uh, in any way, shape, or form. And we were treated with a, an amazing headline, as we called it, the least surprising headline of the year. Almost no Russian oil is sold below $60 price cap, say, Western officials. So, but the, the craziest part is the proposed remediation of this utter failure is now the plan, at least as described in the Financial Times, um, is that Denmark will be given the task of essentially imposing a blockade uh, on Russian ships into and out of the Baltic Sea because, you know, the insurance that those ships have is insufficient to cover the potential environmental disaster that might befall Denmark if these old and dirty ships were to run aground or to capsize. And so, as we said, you know, a pardon our naivete, but do the people of Denmark support going to war with Russia because a, a naval blockade on Russia in the Baltic Sea would seem to us to be crossing the reddest of the red lines? And one wonders whether the people of Denmark have voted uh, for such a proposition. Are we prepared for direct kinetic conflict between a NATO member and, and Russia, because we'd better be if this is our plan. You know, it's also crazy uh, when you think about it. Like, I don't know who comes up with these things. Janet Yellen uh, may have been the chair of the Federal Reserve and may currently be the head of the U.S. Treasury, but apparently she doesn't know very much about commodities. Okay, so so let's let's look forwards, right? Because as you've laid it out there, it's so ludicrous. And this this latest twist pulling Denmark into this is just, it's just beyond for me. I just cannot Every time I think these clowns have run out of ways to baffle me with their ineptitude, they come up with something like this. But let's look forward. You know, as you, as you look at this situation, you look at the war grinding on, you look at the weariness of 
the American public, the British public, public of the EU are sending more and more tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of aid to the Ukraine, particularly now that the Hamas-Israel conflict is also demanding contributions from the West. How do you see this thing playing out from here, Dumi? Because it seems to me, and at the risk of being labelled uh, an apologist, as you have been in the past by certain quarters, <laughs> um, it seems to me that no matter what the media tells us, if you just look at the playing field here and you look at the situation of both sides, it feels to me like this is Russia's war to lose now rather than Ukraine's war to win. What, what do you think? Well, I would begin my answer by saying um, I'm not a geopolitical expert or a military expert, but our read of the situation, um, we follow the news flow like anybody else, given our interest in energy, is that uh, Russia has a long history of winning wars of attrition and um, grinding down their opponents. And look, look, Peter Zihan would say that both Russia and now especially Ukraine are on the cusp of you know significant demographic crises. But last I checked, there's way more people of fighting age in Russia than there are in Ukraine. And um, if you just read one, you know, if you don't read The Economist to get all of your news and you go perhaps one step closer to the original source materials, you can see pretty clear that the, the much vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive of 2023 has failed. I think the Ukrainians were on record as, uh, admitting as much um, last week. The West, unbelievably so, considering how much money we quote unquote spend on the military industrial complex, seems to be short on bombs and weapons and shells. And um, I think we have vastly underestimated Putin's seriousness in this matter and his popularity domestically and Russia's economic robustness and its ability to not only survive these sanctions, but as we quoted in the piece, look, that their economy is booming and that it's booming because the sanctions have failed. And our attempt at sanctioning Russian energy only caused global energy prices to be higher than they would be. And, and so here we are. And as we, we close the piece, like you could call us whatever names you want to call us. The only thing worse than failure is a predictable one. And our refusal to learn from such setbacks is frankly flabbergasting. But raising your hand early and pointing out that this isn't going to work and in fact will have the counter effect, it will blow up in your face. At the time, we were deemed Putin puppets by certain people on Twitter, some of whom we even used to respect. And yet here we are two years later and we won't, um, we won't be <laughs> waiting for any apologies. You know, this is how, how it goes if you have any kind of presence on the internet and it's just par for the course. But the last sentence of the piece is as follows. The way to win an energy war is to produce more of it and everything else is just happy talk from know-nothings. Well, yeah, it really is frustrating. And as you point out, you know, the Russian economy is actually doing really well. And obviously the better the economy does, the stronger the pro-Putin support is in Russia which again, just kind of reinforces the whole situation. So I, I, you know, I, I just don't see anything other than a kind of grinding Russian victory unless that outcome is so absolutely unconscionable to the West, which I fear it is, that they escalate their involvement and we end up with a much more problematic degree of involvement from NATO forces on the battlefield, which, you know, I think feels to me like that's the way we're heading now. And that, and that genuinely concerns me. I, I, I didn't think we'd have to be worried about that. But the, the longer this goes on and the more the ridiculous policies are proven to not work, the more desperate I think politicians are going to get because you cannot have a defeat as a Western politician. You cannot admit defeat and back down. It's just not the way the, the game works these days. And I'm really concerned, Dumi, about the steps they'll take to, quote, unquote, ensure a victory. Well, there's only one real big loser in all of this, and that, of course, is Europe. 
if you took a step back, who are the big winners? The U.S. is a big winner, even if it may be, you know, partners with with a side that looks likely to perhaps, if not lose a war, secure peace in suboptimal terms. Let's put it that way. China's a big winner. They have a new energy partner. And Russia's a big winner. The only big loser, huge loser in this, is Europe proper, beginning with Germany, but continuing across the continent. I think this is going to be a severe generational blow to the European Union project. And, um, We'll see what happens. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. But um, and look, at, at the same time that we're trying to sanction Putin's energy, the U.S. is producing an enormous amount of energy and Europe is overpaying for it. That's the net result is Europe is now securing most of their energy from the U.S. They're securing actually still a fair bit from Russia, including some more than a, a, a plurality of their LNG exports, if you can believe it. But the U.S. is now, once again, producing oil at a record rate. We have just recently eclipsed the pre-COVID highs. We are the world's largest producer of natural gas by a wide margin, and much of that export capacity is being directed towards Europe. So Putin wins, the U.S. wins, China wins, and Europe is the big loser. I don't know how you could see it any other way. Yeah, I can't, unfortunately, which doesn't fill me with any kind of joy whatsoever, but that's just the way it is. Well, listen, another piece that you wrote, which I want to talk about because I found it Again, just I don't know where you find these stories, but this one was a real head scratcher for me. And that is Carol Miller, Congresswoman Carol Miller of, uh, remind me where she's from? Uh, she's Virginia. from the great state Virginia? of West, West Virginia. The great state West Virginia, of West Virginia, yeah. Virginia. So let's switch, let's switch topics from Vladimir Putin to uh, Carol Miller and try and draw a line and differentiate the two because the policies of the West against Russian energy is ludicrous and Ms. Miller, some of the ideas that she's been espouting are perhaps even more ludicrous. So why don't you run us through what she's been up to? <laughs> well, we should give some background on poor Congresswoman Carol Miller. So she is, as we said in the piece, she sort of has a quintessential American political biography. You know, she owns a bison farm in Huntington, West Virginia, and um, got active in local politics, as one does, and was first elected to the what's known as the West Virginia House of Delegates in 2006. And she um, rose to the position of majority whip. I believe she was the first female to serve in that capacity in, in the state um, House of Delegates. And then she ran for Congress, um, you know, being a, a bison farmer. She had a catchy campaign phrase that she had pledged to, quote, cut the bull in, in Washington, which is great. And, uh, and now she sits on the powerful Ways and Means Committee. And for those who listening who aren't based in the U.S. or don't follow American politics, that's basically the most powerful committee in Congress because it controls the purse strings. And then she, you know, the Hill, of course, um, is this pretty apolitical, well thought of politics magazine, this news magazine in the US, the Hill. And um, she took to the pages of the Hill to write an amazing op-ed. And um, when it was sent to us, because when such things get published now with as many, you know, subscribers as we have, we, we receive it several dozen times via email. She wrote this amazing word salad in the Hill about hydrogen. So hydrogen now, just so everybody listening is aware, hydrogen is the new source of grift in Western governments. Um, scores of billions of dollars will be wasted chasing the hydrogen dream. And Miss Miller was very upset about some new rules that are about to drop um, from the U.S. Department of Treasury that will ultimately adjudicate who gets to pilfer the U.S. Treasury um, and at what level. And um, they, it's, it's very difficult to explain for those not in the energy space just how nonsensical her her op-ed was, but um, it was very clear that Miss um, Miller, it's been a long time she's, since she's taken a chemistry class, let's just put it that way. Well, look, nobody explains these complex energy issues better than you. Because I think until you understand the reality, the full impact of the lunacy isn't quite 
there. So, so give it sure. a stab if you can and try and explain the, the reality, and then let's get into what she said. All right, so hydrogen is an interesting molecule. Hydrogen, of course, is in water, but water is basically burned hydrogen. That's the way you need to think about water. It is the lowest energy state that you'll find. Hydrogen, it has been fully combusted, H2O. That O means the hydrogen has been burned. If you just have the hydrogen molecule, H2, and then you burn it with air, you release an enormous amount of energy. And so when you burn hydrogen, you don't have carbon dioxide. So hydrogen, in theory, is a pretty reasonable energy carrier. So if you start with water and you put a lot of energy into water, you could split that water into hydrogen and oxygen and then move the hydrogen around as a fuel, just like we do today with gasoline, and then recombine it with oxygen under controlled circumstances to release the heat. Now, there's one small problem with this is that you have to put twice as much energy into the splitting than you could ever get out on the back end because thermodynamics is such that there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. And so hydrogen as a reasonable energy carrier only makes sense if you really, really care about carbon emissions because you're basically taking twice as much energy to produce the amount of embodied energy that you could eventually extract for useful work out of the hydrogen. Now, if you have a landscape filled with wind turbines and a desert filled with solar arrays, and there were periods of time where you're producing way more electricity than you could ever hope to use, one of the things you could do with that excess electricity is spin an electrolyzer and um, split water and store the hydrogen, and then use the hydrogen later, if you so choose, to make electricity again. But of course, this is very inefficient, much less efficient than, say, a battery or pumping water, you know, using gravity storage with, with large volumes of water and so on. But if energy is free, hydrogen is a reasonably useful fuel that we could make with free energy. You literally cannot create a carbon-free economy unless you capture all of the carbon dioxide you create when you combust fossil fuels. Hydrogen is a fuel that, at least in theory, enables a utopian vision of a world in which we have ample energy and no carbon emissions. And so that's why every environmentalist around the world is pursuing all manner of technology developments in and around the hydrogen space. Can we split the water more efficiently? Can we store the hydrogen at higher pressures so that you know, we can um, have a longer range in a, in a hydrogen combustion vehicle? Pick your favorite technological development to make hydrogen possible. Now, with hydrogen, the way it's made today, and I should say, hydrogen is a globally traded commodity on a very large scale, predominantly because it finds very wide use in, ironically, uh, the refining of, of oil. And so hydrogen today is made on demand by what's known as methane steam reforming, where you take natural gas and through a complicated set of chemistries, you make hydrogen and ultimately CO2. So that's how you make hydrogen today. It's handled in large quantities. We have hydrogen pipelines. There's you know, um, dozens and dozens, I think 48 hydro, world-scale hydrogen production plants along the Gulf Coast alone with 1,000 miles of hydrogen pipelines. And so the, the big grift that's happening here is the, the fossil fuel industry is going to get all, as, their hands on as much of this hydrogen money as possible. And then when the wind and solar panels don't appear, they'll have all this free capital given to them by the government, and they'll just turn around and use that for more efficient uh, refining of fossil fuels. However, to circle all the way back to Ms. Miller, well, she wrote something that is just incomprehensible, and it stuns me that somebody at this level, again, we talked earlier about how could it be that the sanctions policies are so crazy. Well, when you read stuff like this, this is how. Um, she says in this piece that the most effective way to, quote, create hydrogen is through a process called carbon capture utilization and storage. Of course, Carbon capture utilization and storage has nothing to do with hydrogen. It's literally taking CO2 out of the air and shoving it underground. And then she goes on to say the process takes coal and natural gas emissions and converts them into hydrogen. Now, I don't know what this even means. In my mind, natural gas and coal emissions is universally meant to mean carbon dioxide. 
and there's no hydrogen in carbon dioxide. And I don't know how you take carbon dioxide and make hydrogen out of it. And that's like later on, she says, she closes this paragraph with using natural gas and coal emissions to create hydrogen energy, create hydrogen energy, by the way, is the perfect example of a comprehensive energy solution. And um, we have this famous meme of this comedian with the big hair looking quite confused under this quote. And I do think, like we talked earlier, we have a competency crisis amongst the political class. And by the way, she has a staff. The Hill has editors. How does this happen? And as we said in the piece, we're not sure which version of chat GPT was used to create this gibberish, but the, the language model needs a new training set. I mean, what, what are we talking about? There's so much wrong with what she wrote. It's difficult to, to know where to begin, but this is just the opening story to the great pilfering that is about to incur uh, of the public treasury in the U.S., but we thought it was a fun one to introduce the concept of hydrogen, how it's actually made, and why it is that we're about to waste scores of billions, basically lining the pockets, ironically, of the fossil fuel industry in the name of this green energy utopia. Well, look, as I said, no one explains these things better than you. That was a beautiful explanation. And, and you know, I, you and I spoke about this when you published the piece. It's extraordinary to me that this goes unchallenged today. And, and I think it it speaks to a broader problem, which is the media, right? Which is this this inability or unwillingness to do the real work, to do what used to be called journalism and fact check everything and ask tough questions and push back and do all the things that you're supposed to do. Instead, it's, you know, it's, can we get a celebrity, i.e. someone that has some kind of profile to write a piece in our publication? Because if we do get someone who has a name, someone who has a profile, it's bound to bring eyeballs and that, you know, the whole thing is just, it's just ridiculous now because the, the last thing that anybody really cares about is the integrity of the work. It's all about the numbers. It's all about the eyeballs. It's all about influence. And it's nothing to do with the integrity of the journalism. And that is a massive problem, Dumi, because it's not just the energy space that we're seeing this in. It's everywhere and everything. And there is so much misinformation out there now that it's impossible for people to really understand what's going on. And the energy space, given that it is the focal point of so much time and energy, and we are being pointed towards that by every single person standing behind a lectern in the world today, it seems, the fact that you're sending people down this rabbit hole and providing them with complete gibberish for information explains a lot of the ridiculous protests we get in the streets of people that have no idea what they're protesting or what it's all about, but they throw themselves behind a cause which they've been told is virtuous and this is the way to to get a better world for us and our children. And look, you know, well-meaning idiots to a man, well-meaning for sure, but how do we solve this? How do we somehow swing the pendulum back in the direction of information and knowledge rather than just kind of fluff and sound bites and hooks that will that will resonate with people and get them to take a side. Well, that's a great I should say it is a tragedy at the macro level, but it is the the market inefficiency that we at Doomberg are so happily occupying today. I mean I, it's it's this isn't manna from heaven for us because there's no shortage of things to write about. But all kidding aside. I do believe that Doomberg would not be a thing if journalism had not been destroyed by the likes of Facebook and Google. Um, let's be fair to the reporters and the journalistic uh, industry. The drive to clickbait has destroyed any semblance of reward for doing proper investigative reporting. And I do believe this is where Substack is differentiating itself across all dimensions. And, you know, we, we've gotten to know the leadership of Substack quite well, given our prominence on the platform 
and we're investors in Substack and full disclosure. We contributed heavily in the author-led round, and I think it's always important to lay bare your potential financial conflicts when you're discussing something like this. But the objective of Substack is to change the way people read on the internet. And I go to Substack every day now, and I subscribe to all manner of Substacks. I think the last time I checked, I was up to over 65 that I subscribe to. Left, right, from environmentalists to um, climate change is a hoax and everything in between. There is a market for community-driven content where you earn your credibility. Look, barely any of our subscribers know who we are in real life. We win their credibility with every piece. And look, we've made mistakes and we've gotten big calls wrong. And, you know, we're the first to admit when we do. But nobody is doing, outside of Substack, I would argue, very few publications are doing deep dives. Now, I would say one of the few remaining periodicals that does a pretty good job of framing these issues relatively well is the Financial Times. Um, I think the Financial Times is still an old school, well-researched. Rarely do I read something in the Financial Times where I think, oh, that's just gibberish. But the Financial Times is, it's a pretty small list, a shrinking list. Now on Substack, you can find deep experts writing on such topics um, and, and across all, all dimensions. And I do think whether it's, you know, the Twitter files or um, Seymour Hirsch going to Substack or you could go find Doomberg or you could, it's a great place. And, and the nice thing about Substack is that it is not driven by advertising. So you don't have this point source of veto on your editorial content. Look, all of our subscribers are precious, but none of them are particularly integral to the financial success or failure of Doomberg. If, if one subscriber gets annoyed with what we write and they unsubscribe, we'll happily give them a refund and move on. If you're running an advertising business, as the new owner of Twitter is finding out, you have to be mindful of what you say. Or not. Uh, otherwise, or not. <laughs> Probably better to not go down that rabbit hole, but... That's been quite the spectacle to watch as an outsider who left the Twitter um, several months ago. Um, that decision seems to be ripening well. Nonetheless, I do think the one thing that I think gives me hope about this situation is a prolonged absence of legitimate, real, in-depth reporting has given birth to Substack. Like the market is hungry for it. People will pay for it. And inefficiencies in the market will be filled. And we are very thankful that Kara Miller exists because it just makes our work fun. And, um, and it's a great way for us, at least, to, um, to, be, to be intellectually deal with just how pathetic the knowledge has become. And look, there's some really great people in Washington, D.C. I think the U.S. Department of Energy is filled with a lot of really patriotic, pragmatic, smart scientists who know what the right answer is and just have to put up with these politicians and understand that, you know, uh, we're only two years away from the next election and, and so on. Um, but, but this one was a particularly clumsy handling of an affair, especially when you consider just how much money is being thrown at this. And when, if we were to, to quantify it, it would, it would shock people. Well, I hate to break it to you, my fine feathered friend, but we are one year away from the next election, unfortunately. Yeah. That doesn't tie <laughs> I guess fine. You're never more than two years away from the oh, next I, election. Oh, sorry. I thought you said, okay, right. No, no, I, I corrected myself. I, 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 didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to ruin your day by letting you know we're, we're just about to go into the full depths of the madness now, I suspect, as we turn, in, turn the page in a new year. You know, th th it's a great point on Substack, and, and it is a fantastic platform. And like you, I don't have as many subscriptions as you, but I have a whole bunch of them from Substack, and every single one of them is valuable to me. So I, I, you know, I think it's, it's proven its worth, and you are the feathered embodiment of that. But the problem seems to be that it's still very much a minority venue in terms of people wanting to seek out information. You know, most people still get their information, from the same massively broad church of mainstream media. And at a time when people need access to the best information they can possibly get, they are continuing to seek it out from places where the quality of their information is deteriorating almost by the day. 
And it really, really worries me with this election coming up because this is going to be a very keenly fought, very uh, important election, potentially with a third candidate who might actually matter for the first time in, you know, since probably Ross Perot. And it terrifies me, frankly, that the minority of people getting their information from Substack are well served and the vast majority of people who are going to go into a booth and make a mark on a piece of paper are being served the kind of fatuous nonsense that we've been talking about. Well, then there's the TikTok issue, um, which, we, which we can get into as well. But I, I will say I'm hopeful. I'll give you a small example. I would say that between Substack and Twitter, there have been a small army of very vocal pro-nuclear energy proponents. And I believe that that effort, which we've played a minor role in, has yielded tangible results. I, I read ahead of COP28 that Biden is looking to secure a commitment from up to a dozen or more countries to radically increase nuclear deployment between now and 2050. Canada, Justin Trudeau did a 180 on nuclear. Outside of Germany, I think we're seeing a global nuclear energy renaissance. And I think that the, the small army of technology experts and influencers on Twitter, on Substack, on their own blogs, on podcasts have actually shaped opinion. I refuse to live in a world where no politician is doing the public's good and all politicians are only lining their pockets. And I do believe and this sometimes annoys our subscribers, that many of the decisions that Joe Biden has made on energy are relatively prudent, given his political reality of being flanked on his far left by environmental extremists. Joe Biden was the senator from Delaware. The biggest corporation in Delaware is DuPont. We used to joke that Senator Biden, comma, DuPont. He wasn't from Delaware, he was from DuPont. He knows the commodity industry reasonably well. The U.S. is, despite all of Biden's, you know, uh, playing footsie with the environmental left, the largest oil producer in the world, the largest natural gas producer in the world. We're a very prominent producer of nuclear power. We have a lot of things going for us. We're toying around with doing an end of year piece about all that's working well and wonderful in America and, and the assets that the country has when it comes out of the fourth turning, as your friend Neil Howe describes. And the rebirth, boy, is going to be special. I want to go long the U.S. rebirth post fourth turning. It's not all doom and gloom, um, the name of our periodical notwithstanding. And so we're generally hopeful. None of these things aren't fixable. As much as we see society ripping itself apart, it was the same way in the 60s, and 70s. You know, this, it was forever thus, and it will forever be. But I do think, by and large, most politicians, even Miss Miller, for example, if I could have gotten hold of her staff before she wrote that piece, I could have corrected it. I think I know what she was trying to say. And we do have, actually, I checked before we started recording, we have 183.gov email addresses in our subscriber data set. So that gives me some hope as well. Well, if you do write that positive end of the year piece, you are going to have to write it under a nom de plume, right? You have to be like Bloomberg <laughs> or something it, because it just, won't, it just won't feel right coming from you. Well, listen, we've still got time, uh, hopefully, to sneak in one more piece, which, and that's the piece that you put out this morning. Which, And this is a subject very close to my heart because um, you were talking about how they're coming for meat. And once they come for meat, I've got a problem with that, do me? So um, <laughs> I hadn't heard of, of Climate and this guy, Danush Dinesh. Is it Danush Dinesh? Or sounds right. Sounds something right. Something like that. So, so walk us through this story as well, because this is, again, it's not just a story, because we've kind of heard this story before, this, this push to kind of marginalise meat and push people down the plant-based road. And I, and I totally get that. And a lot of people have been down that road in the last few years. Many of them have, <laughs> have turned around and got on a bus going back in the other direction pretty quick, as the stock of price of Beyond Meat bears testament to. But it's still a thing. And... The spin you put on this and the, and, the, and the direction you took in terms of, again, 
this idea that's constant in your work about how you're asking people to vote for a, a much worse standard of living in the present to potentially ameliorate issues sometime far in the future. This was another great example of that. So walk us through this piece, which I think, was it Meet in the Middle, I think you called it? Yeah, Meet in the Middle, but M-E-A-T, yeah. So as you mentioned, we coined the phrase, the big lie. And the big lie sold by climate alarmists is that we can radically reduce our use of fossil fuels without meaningfully impacting our lifestyles. We can radically reduce our use of fossil fuels, but it comes at a significant price. And nobody wants to talk about those trade-offs because they are politically unpalatable to the point of politically unsustainable. No politician, absent complete authoritarian control, can radically reduce their nation's consumption of fossil fuels without killing a lot of people. It's not like this is unprecedented. Chairman Mao, right? So the big lie is that all we need to do is proliferate the, quote, cheapest sources of energy, wind and solar, and um, install a few batteries, and we could end fossil fuel use now, and everything will be great. And of course, that's just anybody who has even a passing knowledge of physics knows this is patently untrue. And we like to divide the populace into sort of four categories, the hard right and the hard left. You know, the hard left thinks the world is coming to an end and, and no tactics are out of bounds in order to prevent uh, a cataclysm. The hard right thinks that climate change is a hoax driven by the World Economic Forum in order to um, depopulate the world and, and to implement a totalitarian uh, global regime, new world order. And then probably 80% of the people in between those polls, we would characterize them as sort of soft right and soft left. And full disclosure, I'd probably... In the soft right category, I, I have my doubts about the alarmist view, and I think that uh, most of this is, is blown out of proportion for cronyism and grift. But there's a vast category in the soft left of people who are worried, have been, you know, have bought into the propaganda and, and who believe that they should recycle and that they should drive an electric vehicle as a spare, of course. You know, they need their SUV as a backup for when you actually need to go somewhere of distance. Um, put a few solar panels on the roof and so on. They're willing to go along for the ride to a point. And I think we're getting to the point now where people on the soft left are beginning to wonder what it is exactly that they have signed up for. And this push to um, eliminate meat from our diets is a perfect example. We think it might well be the issue upon which the big lies finally made real for the plurality of everyday voters. And so Climate, which is just you know served a Doomberg special served up on a platter, literally, pardon the pun, but this young chap who uh, is a very ambitious fellow and really... Um, if you read the piece, you probably caught one of my favorite digs of all time, which is that the only thing surprising about his biography is that it is written in the third person. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's really quite something. Meat, Danish, a fearless visionary determined to shake up our food system and take on climate change. You know, it's uh, right out of central casting. And so, as we said in the caption to the piece, enough to make John Kerry blush, uh, really. Um, so, in the piece, we talk about the climate intensity of various foods. And, of course, beef is considered to be the most, as we said, four-legged gas guzzlers, you know, a picture of the cow in the piece. But the, the United Nations has produced a helpful chart of the kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions per 100 grams of protein. Now, we've since had several readers point out to us that not all protein is the same, and the UN fails to account for the quality of the protein. And that's all fair and true and, and, and germane. But beef, of course, is the greatest sin. And as we said in the caption to the piece, uh, Mr. Peanut for the win, because nuts, of course, give you the most protein for the least amount of greenhouse gas emission. And then there's everything in between. And so um, if the aspiring global uh, leaders had their way, we would be feasting on legumes and breads and pasta and tofu. And, um, and we will be foregoing beef and lamb and shellfish and cheese and milk and pork and so on. And, and we talk about this in the piece, how most importantly, 
as it always is. We call it the P7. So there's the G7, which everybody knows, you know, Canada, US, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, France. But we call the P7 the seven most populous countries in the world that aren't currently in the G7, because the US is actually in the top seven. This would be Bangladesh, Brazil, China, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, and I believe Pakistan. There's 4 billion people in that category, and they're barely eating any meat today. And so if we take the bottom five of the P7, because actually China and Brazil, one of the earliest things they did when they developed their economy was to ramp up their meat consumption, because that's what rich people do. They prefer to eat steak. The bottom five of the P7, which, by the way, holds seven times as many people within their borders as does the U.S., consumes one-seventeenth the amount of meat per capita than does the U.S. And any small perturbation in that number is going to swamp any quote-unquote savings. And that just tells you that the world is going to roll the dice on climate change. But we ended the piece with an analogy. If we restricted beef, let's just say we gave climate eat its way. What does that do to the price of pork? Well, they're substitutes. And in the same way that a natural gas shortage in Europe led to worldwide record coal prices, we suspect that you know, um, a top-down mandated um, beef crisis would spread to pork and to chicken and to turkey and to fish and eggs and nuts because the protein complex is very analogous to the energy complex. You have different forms and different qualities, but they're substitutes for each other. And by the way, the rich, like we did in the energy crisis, will set the clearing price. China will scramble for pork. Pork is central to Chinese culture. No leader in China can survive a pork shortage of any extended period. And that will just cascade like it did in the energy crisis. And who will be left with the short end of the stick? Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, Nigeria, and Pakistan. And so it, will, it is forever thus that the G7 needs, the unspoken thing is we need the global south to not develop, to rein in climate change. Well, it's interesting because you, know, you used a phrase there which has gently over time come to underpin a lot of your work. And it's this idea that Ultimately, we're going to roll the dice on climate change. In the UK, we've seen some severe pushback against some of these emissions measures that have been put in place in London by the, by the Lord Mayor. This ultra-low emission zone has created havoc. People are just not ready and not willing to acquiesce to that now, and cameras are getting vandalised, and it's, it's become quite the battleground. And in fact, I think this weekend, London has stepped in because the Santa Parade was getting ruined by the ultra-low emission zone. And so... Londoners took matters into their own hands to kind of get that back on the rails again. But you know, I agree with you that this is where we're headed. We, we are going to be forced to roll the dice on climate change. But how do you see that journey unfolding? Because it's an incredibly difficult needle to thread, given how much time and energy has been invested into amping everybody up into this kind of foaming frenzy about climate change. How do you walk that back? If you are going to roll the dice... How do you manage to walk that back and allow people to kind of stand down a little bit, given, as I say, given how much you've wound them up? Our view is the hard left is not going to fade away, as we said in the piece. They will flame out. But anybody who does any logical thinking on the matter, necessarily, whether you believe it's a calamity or not, we are going to roll the dice on climate change. China is not going to stop building coal plants. India is not going to stop developing its economy for its citizens. Nobody in the global south cares about climate change now, especially after having watched Germany retreat to the coal mines at the first sign of crisis. They are watching what we do and now ignoring what we say. And so given that we're going to roll the dice on climate change, our fear, our prediction is that the, the hard left will be hyperbolic on the way out. And we're seeing this. Look, what happened in the, um, in the Netherlands in the, with the most recent election. We're seeing, you might disagree with the AFD in Germany on, say, 
um, immigration or pick your favorite, you know, hot button social topic of the day. But they're right on energy and maybe they're hijacking energy because they're just in the business of uh, playing to people's anger. They're effective at it. And we're seeing in country after country a rightward tilt. And I suspect that the German ruling coalition will collapse soon over this $60 billion budget hole that the, the Constitutional Court of Germany just opened. The Greens are going to get wiped out and um, populist rightward leaning parties will take their place. And the pendulum swing means get regressed to. <laughs> this is what happens. I've been trying to warn our friends on the progressive environmental left that the path function matters. If you push too hard, too far, too fast, the people will revolt on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And we're beginning to see the early signs of political riot all across Europe. I mean, you tell me, you follow the European political scene as much as anybody, this election in the Netherlands is a shocking result to the establishment in Brussels. Yeah, no, it, it, look, it is. And it's the first time that one of these candidates has got it over the line. We've had you know, Marine Le Pen came close in France several times. Obviously, we saw Farage create a lot of noise in the UK. We've seen uh, other right-wing leaders in, without wanting to upset anybody, less important geopolitically countries like Hungary in Europe. But we haven't seen one of the core EU nations turn to the right like the Dutch just have. And that shocked a lot of people. It shouldn't have. Uh, to your point, I think it shouldn't have shocked people at all. The, the writing's been on the wall for probably seven or eight years now in terms of the way that the politics of Europe has been progressing. The question is, is the election of Geert Wilders, is that a wake-up call or is that a tipping point? And you know, I fear and suspect it's more of a tipping point than a wake-up call. And we will be heading in that direction uh, in a more comprehensive way right across Europe. You know, Georgia Maloney was kind of tarred with that same brush when she won election in Italy. And, you know, she she was an old school Italian talking about family values and, and you know, all these kind of things which are near and dear to Italian hearts. She gets painted with a far right brush. She moderates considerably when she gets into office, does a pretty good job. Uh, it remains to be seen if Wilders will moderate because he's much more of a firebrand than Maloney was. I suspect he will be much more reluctant to moderate. But we, have, we wait and see, Demi, but I think your point is absolutely right. The trend has been rightwards. And, you know, one of the problems, I think, is that there's no room in the media for centre-right or rightist policies anymore. As soon as you are right of centre, you are branded far-right, or at least that's that's the, the attempt is made to brand you far-right. When was the last time you read about a right-leaning candidate? I would argue it was probably a decade ago. Everybody's far-right. So we'll see. It, it is changing, the politics is changing, and I think the climate change debate is central to that change, and I think you've done a brilliant job of covering that. A couple of milestones for, for you to, to consider. I mean, it, it's not clear that he'd be allowed to form a government. No, it's, this it's, is true. It, it's not clear that um, the, the AFD in Germany, they're talking about banning the party. You know, this is all Streisand effect type behavior, which will only make matters worse. I think he's hoping that he will be shunned from uh, being able to form a government uh, in the back of his mind, because that's only going to make things better for him in the next election. And and in Germany, they're, they're talking about uh, making all of the other parties commit to never uh, welcoming the AFD as part of a coalition partner, as if this is going to do anything but increase the popularity of the AFD. This is a protest vote, you see. You can't stifle a protest vote. Uh, look at what's happening in Argentina. Right. It's a, that's the other example. If Canada held an election today, how badly do you think Trudeau would get trounced? If Germany held an election today, do you think that the coalition partners would get swept out of office? Of course they would. It's there. It's pent up. And it all, frankly, has to do with energy, in our view. Like it, 
Even immigration, one can, can imagine. The amount of energy produced divided by your population is your standard of living. If you're not producing enough energy, why do you want to increase the numerator? Like one could argue that this is, itself is also an energy policy. Now, of course, there are other issues, cultural and tribal and all the other stuff that goes with it. But I could even make a case that if you're not generating enough economic wealth for your limited number of citizens, then of course there's going to be pushback in expanding the number of people seeking ever larger portions of a limited energy budget. And I speak of energy broadly, like food and, and so on. And so, you know, th these things, it all comes back to getting your energy policy right. Everything else gets a lot easier. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. And, and you know, the, the, the pieces you've written recently just add to a fantastic Canada work that has been consistent on this theme from the very first piece you published. So if there's anybody out there listening to this that hasn't subscribed to you, is just on the free emailing list and stuff, this would be the perfect time, I suggest to you, to sign up for a paid Doomberg subscription because this trend is not going to reverse very quickly and it's going to continue and you need to understand it. And Doomberg, as I said earlier, nobody does a better job of explaining this stuff than you. So congratulations on all the tremendous work you've been dropping. I really appreciate it, Grant. As always, the pleasure is all ours to talk with you and, and to have hosted you here in the chicken coop. And there'd be no Doomberg without Grant Williams, as you know. And so the whole team and our families are very grateful to you. And really, let's not uh, let the time pass so long in between this and the next recording. I, of course, I understand why. And then we had busy schedules, but... Uh, it always is a great pleasure to speak with you and I really enjoyed this one, uh, which comes as no surprise to anybody. Yeah, we will do it again. We will do it again soon. In the meantime, having encouraged everybody to sign up, why don't you tell them how they can do that and where? Yeah, the only place to find us now is doomberg.substack.com. Everything is there, our pro page, our, our podcast appearances, um, our archive. As you said, you know, pre-subscribers get our previews and paid subscribers get the full article. Hopefully we will entice enough uh, pre-subscribers over time to keep going. Because we do think it's important that energy get taught and get, get implemented correctly at, at the local and, and regional and national levels. And, and to the extent that we can play a small part in educating people in that regard, it's, uh, it was what we were meant to do. And we certainly love doing it. Tremendous. Well, more power to you, my flightless friend. I will see you again soon. And uh, you're right, we won't leave it so long between, uh, between conversations next time. Take care of yourself. You too. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.